Hi, everyone, and welcome to SEDScast. I'm your host, Owen Marr, and our guest today is Grant Bonin. Grant is the Senior Vice President of Business Development at Spaceflight Industries. He works with the customers and the engineering team to pursue business opportunities for SFI and expand the company. Before joining Spaceflight, Grant served as the Chief Engineer of Space Systems at Rocket Lab. He also held the CTO position at Deep Space Industries from 2016 to 2018. In addition to his full-time job, Grant sits on the SEDS USA Board of Advisors. We are extremely excited to have him on the show. Welcome to SEDScast, Episode 7, with Grant Bonnet. Hi, everyone. Welcome to SEDScast. It's your host, Owen Marr. Joining us today is Grant Bonin from Spaceflight Industries. Grant, how's your day going? Oh, it's going very well. Thanks. How about you? My day's going pretty well as well. It's, I mean, noon right now, and I've already got a bunch of work done, so can't complain. For the people that don't know Grant, he is one of the advisors for SEDS USA, and he's also the Senior Vice President at Spaceflight Industries. Can you tell us a little bit about what your current job entails? Yeah, so um, I'm happy to, and, and thanks again for having me on the podcast. Um, as you say, uh, right now I work in a, a role of Senior Vice President for Business Development at Spaceflight, um, and Spaceflight considers itself to be the world leader in providing satellite rideshare and mission management services. So my broad job is kind of to operate at the intersection of business development and sales, um, our engineering efforts and strategic development so that we can not only get as many customers as we can into space exactly when they want and exactly to the orbits that they want, but also look at downstream initiatives to improve all of the overall customer experience that we provide. So can you tell us where or when you first got interested in space and, and decided this might be an industry you wanted to work in? Absolutely. Um, I've been really fortunate to be one of those people who's uh, who got passionate about something at an early age and the passion never really went away. Um, I think I was in, I want to say it was grade four. So I grew up in Canada. The first uh, female Canadian astronaut, Roberta Bondar, was from my hometown, Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. To celebrate her launch, we did uh, a space week when I was uh, in school back then. And at the end of space week, she launched on Discovery. It was very exciting, but space week never really ended for me, even though it ended for the school. Um, I was just completely hooked at that age. And then I just read voraciously everything I could get my hands on about space flight, about astronomy and physics. And originally was pretty determined to be uh, an astronomer or an astrophysicist. I was deeply inspired at an early age by the works of Carl Sagan in particular, but also big science fiction nut, as I think a lot of the people who are listening to the podcast would be. But then I guess I got to a point where I, I really cared, realized I cared a lot more about making astronomy a field science and really started to shift into engineering. Uh, I think I think you know a lot about your own reading habits when you drop a book like Cosmos and it always reliably opens to the page with all of the starships on it rather than any other page. And I was just hooked on the engineering side of it. And there were some bumps along the road in that journey. But um, yeah, I was hooked on space from a very early age and felt that the best way I could contribute it to at least, sorry, uh, human space development and human space settlement was uh, by going into aerospace engineering, which is eventually what I did. Awesome. And yeah, how did you decide which school you wanted to go to to pursue an aerospace engineering degree? Well, it's actually an interesting journey because I, um, I was a high school dropout for a little while. Um, I took some time off in high school because I really didn't know what path to follow. I didn't get particularly good grades, but I did a lot of extracurricular stuff really did a lot of soul searching during my time away from uh, from high school. Um, I actually ended up, I remember going into a bookstore in Toronto in Canada and picking up Bob Zubrin's The Case for Mars, um, which has staged pretty well, actually. I read that book in like one single sit, uh, sitting and it pretty much single-handedly inspired me to get back to school uh, and to go all in on engineering. Now in Canada at that time, there were really only two aerospace engineering programs um, at the undergraduate level, one that was in Toronto and um, one that was in Ottawa. Uh, I'd never lived in Ottawa before, uh, so I decided to go there. It was the uh, Carleton University. So about a year later, applied and um, went into aerospace engineering at Carleton, which um, allowed me to focus initially on aerospace uh, structures and materials and vehicle design. 
were you involved with anything like SEDS? I don't know if there was a SEDS chapter when you were around uh, at the university, but were there any, you know, space related clubs or teams? Yeah, so it's actually a, a fun story for me. Um, I, I, I'm embarrassed to say I don't know if the chapter is still active, but uh, when I was at Carleton, I founded its SEDS chapter. Uh, we called it Carleton University SEDS, QSEDS, which I think we unintentionally stole from uh, CU. But um, I wanted to host this space conference that the Canadian Space Society had been putting on. They typically had required a university that was hosting it to have a student group um, to do the logistics in the organization. And when I put my hand up to try to um, grab a hold of this conference and host it, uh, they said, well, what's the student group that's going to host it? And I said, um, Carleton University says chapter, of course. Um, and then, of course, that was the act of creation. Um, so we scrambled to create a SEDS chapter. Um, we did a few other neat little projects with that SEDS chapter when I was there, but um, about six months later, we hosted uh, this Canadian Space Summit, which was pretty great. Uh, we had uh, a lot of pretty high quality guests. Um, we had Chris Hadfield out back then, this was 2006, I think. Um, it was um, altogether uh, a pretty fun little conference, but uh, that was how I got introduced to the world of SEDS. Um, among the other speakers there, we had Rick Tomlinson, we had Bob Richards, who was a co-founder of SEDS. Um, and that really socialized me to um, the broader SEDS community. And so that was my, I guess, first foray into this uh, student universe. And it was fantastic. Awesome to hear. And why are you still involved with SEDS? Why do you choose to be an advisor and be at Space Vision? Well, I think that when I was a student, the one thing that I really craved was professional mentorship. And there are so many things that I wish I could go back and tell my past self. Um, a lot of things to warn myself about, but also a lot of things to tell myself to chill out about, to not worry about as much as I did when I was a student. And really want to, in any way that I can, both, I guess, provide some of those lessons learned to students, but also be a source of potential information and to also help students with networking in the broader community, which is arguably you know, one of the hardest things to start doing if you're not an intrinsic extrovert, and a lot of people in STEM aren't. Um, but yeah, it's really just about trying to help students who are interested in space um, to have successful careers, uh, start successful careers, to not stress too much about a lot of the things that students do worry about, but also to make sure that you avoid some of the pitfalls and you know, just generally want to help to the extent I can the next generation of space development interested people. Yeah, that's a lot of why we built this podcast is because we wanted a platform where people could come on and talk to a lot of students at once about, you know, their experiences and their advice to the next generation of students. So that's great to hear. Before we get into the advice part, let's talk a little bit more about your career. Where did so did you jump right into grad school after you were done at Carleton? Yeah, um, that, that's exactly right. So at Carleton, I guess the journey was um, mechanical and aerospace engineering. I was originally interested in propulsion, but I thought that most of the innovation in space launch in particular, but um, space development in general was going to be based in material sciences. So I focused heavily on materials and composites in particular. I was going to go to grad school at CU um, to do bioastronautics originally. Um, that was my plan and I was pretty fixated on it. But um, then I met a person who become a very close friend and, and coworker later in life, um, uh, a mentor at the time. And in pretty much one single sitting, he convinced me that if I couldn't, that I couldn't call myself an aerospace engineer if I didn't put things in air and space. Um, and that if I wanted to do, you know, tangible work that would be relatively um, rapid to execute, that small spacecraft was the thing to do. I visited um, the University of Toronto's Space Flight Laboratory where they were building and still are building more spacecraft under their roof than the rest of Canada put together. Um, I saw my first CubeSat, saw my first microsatellites, and I was hooked. And so I just did a complete 180, um, decided to go to the University of Toronto for grad work, and then also at the same time made a pretty big and drastic switch in my area of expertise um, out of mechanical engineering and into electrical engineering. Um, so that was, um, I guess that was the, the journey from undergrad to my master's. And then the neat thing about the Space Flight Laboratory in Toronto is they do commercial missions out of a university setting. So they employ a large number of, well, what I consider to be some of the highest caliber engineers I've ever worked with. 
Um, so after I finished my master's there, I stayed at the University of Toronto at Spaceflight Lab and then continued my journey initially into, um, I guess, power electronics development, then embedded systems development in general, a lot of embedded software, and then propulsion, broader electrical systems engineering, systems engineering, program management, and business development. So it was a fantastic span of time that I spent there where I got to work on a lot of really cool small spacecraft missions end to end. It was a fantastic uh, program that they've got there and I'd recommend it to anybody. Yeah, I think, you know, seeing a uh, CubeSat or something through from start to finish is really valuable for students. I know that's something a lot of universities are working on is getting more students involved with those sorts of programs. Uh, when you're talking to a student and they're thinking about or they're weighing a decision between going into grad school versus going into industry, what factors do you base your advice on? Um, well, I think it depends on whether they're contemplating doing a master's or going the long haul and doing a PhD. Um, the advice that I was given on it was that, you know, master's can be very valuable. Unfortunately, there's a bit of credential inflation that we see. So the joke is that, that I've heard a few times is that a master's is the new undergrad. Um, I don't particularly buy into that, but there are people that seem to. I think a master's is a good top up um, if you're so inclined, but it's not a precondition for most entry uh, level jobs in the industry. But for, I guess, for PhD, I think it's fundamentally about, are you committed to being, to building a career around one particular area of expertise, one particular research area? If you want to go the academic route with that PhD, are you committed to, I guess, that academic path? Um, and you have to be, I think, extremely passionate about your PhD if you're going to survive that slog. I mean, I think that's generally true. The only way to be great at something is to love it. But PhD programs look like um, all the friends I've, I know who've done them. Uh, it's a fairly painful, long slog. Um, so you really got to be committed to that. And then you've got to really, I think, be committed to the life that it implies having afterwards, which is often not always one of specialization. I was told, you know, if you want to be a professor, if you want to teach, if you want to do fundamental research, PhD is great. If it's just a vanity project so that you can become, so that I could become Dr. Grant Bonin, don't do it. And I looked myself in the mirror and I said, yeah, it's just a vanity project. The only reason I wanted is to be Dr. Grant Bonin. So I saved myself 47 years and didn't do it. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a pretty solid you know, advice. And that's kind of what I've, I've heard a lot of people talk about making the jump to PhD. You really have to be passionate about a specific thing that you know you're going to be studying for five years plus. So that's good to hear. Uh, what did you hop into as soon as you were done with your master's? Yeah, so that was at um, the Spaceflight Laboratory. Um, I stayed there as an electronics engineer. Um, I was really focused on power electronics in particular, but made that switch to being a double E in my first job. And it was kind of a you know, spacecrafter made of wires and PCBs and bits. And I really didn't have a lot of exposure to that side of things. And so I really went all in on being a power electronics engineer um, at SFL, where I had the privilege of designing, I think what was ultimately four generations of spacecraft power systems from the CubeSat level up to the, the kilowatt class power systems, and in particular specialized in developing battery charge regulators and power distribution units. Then continued that path, expanded that into broader embedded systems work, did a lot of embedded software, particularly for a mission that we were doing at the time called M3MSAT, which launched after I'd left SFL. But um, Overall, I was always interested in the big picture side of things. And so as I kind of accumulated experience in different subsystem areas, um, I meandered my way into systems engineering. The director at SFL, um, who's one of my favorite people and a great mentor, uh, Dr. Robert Z, gave me a chance to move into systems engineering and project management, which I jumped at the opportunity to do and got to manage a number of uh, really cool satellite missions there. And then... From there, moved into a little bit more of a business development role in the last year or so I spent at the Spaceflight Laboratory. So it was a, it was kind of a, a strange journey, um, but it was a very rewarding one. And I got to do a lot of neat missions and, um, and touch pretty much every aspect of spacecraft mission design, um, spacecraft assembly integration tests, spacecraft operations, and program development and customer capture in the very first place. Yeah, that sounds like it would be a really good place to learn a, a variety of skills you know, in a, in a compressed time compared to, you know, other engineers that might spend 20 years learning about all the different subsystems if they're working on a much larger spacecraft. One of my favorite pieces of advice uh, on that was um, 
and I think I read this in a book called Advice for Rocket Scientists, um, the, um, is that you spend, you can spend two or three years learning about 80% of any particular discipline, but then you can easily spend another 10 years learning the last 20%. And then you can find yourself stuck in that area because you've become a specialist. So people who I think want to cultivate the big picture perspective, um, I usually recommend, you know, trying to dabble in everything, but not lingering too long in any particular discipline because you got to be careful what you're good at. Mm-hmm. That's something we've noticed with a lot of the the speakers that we've had on are people that jumped around a lot at the start and got experience in a bunch of different fields. And then when they do pick a job where they're longer term, it's something that's either systems engineering or vice president of special projects or business development. And so it's interesting to see how a lot of people that are focused on broader ideas jump around a lot and learn a lot of good technical things at the start. But like you said, it's two to three years where they're learning a good amount about each subject. Yep, I'd agree with that. So Deep Space Industries was one company I saw you worked for. It's now changed names, but I really like what they were doing because they were looking really far out at you know, some very interesting ideas. How did you get involved with that company and what did you work on while you were there? Yeah, so that, that, was, um, that was a fun journey. Um, the, it was a painful one, but it was a fun one. I was still at the um, Space Flight Laboratory in Toronto. Incidentally, the person who had talked me out of doing a PhD a gentleman named Daniel Faber, who uh, who would be a great interview for your podcast, and uh, is now the CEO of a company called OrbitFab. He was the chief executive officer of Deep Space Industries at the time, and and a dear friend. And he called me one day and he said, "Hey, you want to come move to California and see if we can figure out this whole asteroid mining thing?" And I said, "Yeah, sure." Um, well, it wasn't quite that simple. They were in the very early stages of fundraising. I wanted them to have a certain amount of money in the bank before I was willing to make that commitment. Um, my, uh, but I had a, a son who was one and a half and a, a daughter on the way. And we said, well, the move to California won't be easy now. It's not going to get any easier later. So we took the plunge and moved to Silicon Valley. And I joined DSI initially as its chief engineer. I would later become the chief technology officer there. And I remember when I showed up, we had this little office in the NASA Ames Research Park that had basically two folding chairs and half as many staff. Hmm. And that was about it. And um, you know, by the time, I guess, I left DSI, we'd built it into a roughly 20-person organization with three offices, uh, two in the United States and one in Luxembourg. Um, and it captured a significant amount of market share in water-based satellite propulsion. Um, so that was how I got into DSI. Um, as I think you know, but if your uh, listeners don't, Deep Space Industries is one of a couple uh, companies in the United States, but there are others out there in the world um, that had the long-term vision of pursuing space resource utilization, um, asteroid mining. But we're trying to create these short-term plans that would connect where we are today with the future that we cared about. The focus that we really placed, um, or the emphasis that we had at DSI was really on the propulsion element and in particular, making propulsion systems that could run off what we thought would be, you know, the oil of the solar system, which was water. And so the business plan was predicated on creating this, creating water-based propulsion systems for small spacecraft so that we could, you know, inject into the market great propulsion solutions and create an ecosystem of customers now that could be serviced by what we thought would be the resources of the future. So we were trying to bootstrap demand uh, by focusing on uh, ISRU compatible propulsion systems, um, water in particular. So we created a product line there called um, Comet, which is an electrothermal water-based propulsion system. There are a number of them flying. There are a couple of more that will launch next week. And um, that was really the principal product that um, uh, allowed the company to be uh, acquired by Bradford um, right around the time that I left um, in late, I think that was late 2018. The time kind of blurs together now. But yeah, that was that was the journey. We were trying to really prospect for oil while selling the internal combustion engine, um, for lack of a better analogy. But if uh, the other analogy that we used a lot, and you've probably heard this one before, is that um, if we saw other companies wanting to be the actual mining companies, we wanted to be the pickaxe and shovel company or the, the Levi Jeans company. We wanted to create tools that would enable exploration, um, even if it didn't mean that we'd necessarily do those exploration activities ourselves. And um, yeah, so that was that was the journey of DSI. I mean, that sounds nice. Hopefully that sounds coherent and linear, but the reality of that startup experience was 
um, extremely rocky, very stressful, uh, very punishing uh, in terms of trying to make sure that, you know, you could have enough money in the bank that you could make payroll. Um, it's the startup suffering that a lot of people go through. Um, it was fun. I, I don't regret any of it, but um, it was a real challenge a lot of the time because we just, um, we were fundamentally too soon. And in the world of, I guess, Silicon Valley, the difference between being wrong and being too soon is nothing. So we were definitely before our time, but I think in the end, we built a great team, uh, many of whom now work at fantastic companies in Silicon Valley and around the United States. Um, we built products that the customers are trying to pull out of our hands at the end, which was great. And hopefully we moved the needle a little bit on socializing the community to using water as a propellant and the recognized number of companies, uh, Momentus being a good example, um, that are continuing to pursue developing water-based in-space transportation services. So um, that was the that's the rosy story of the, the journey of DSI. Uh, I'm happy to share the war stories too. Yeah, I have to imagine being at that small of a company with that big of a vision, it's, it's got to seem impossible at the start. One thing I was impressed with was that you went from a very big vision to actually saying, okay, what's you know a small challenge we can tackle within that big vision? And that's where you start to see, obviously, development of the water propulsion. Can you talk about the advantages and, and disadvantages of using water versus something like you know, an ion thruster or conventional engines? Oh, sure. Um, and, you know, there's no perfect solution. With water-based propulsion, for, a pra from, for practical purposes, one of the major advantages is that it's extremely safe to work with. Um, you're not going to find a propellant to work with that's any safer. It's intrinsically inert. Um, it's easy to ship. It's easy to fuel. It's easy to launch. With electrothermal thrusters, you can realize performance in the, you know, 200 seconds of specific impulse range. With microwave or electrothermal, you can probably bring that up into the 500 to 700 seconds of specific impulse type range. So they can be good thrusters. They're never going to give you the thrust that chemical systems give. Um, they're also never going to give the specific impulse that uh, more canonical uh, Hall, Hall effect thrusters might. So it sits kind of in between those solutions. And then, therefore, depending on how you implement it, it can either combine the advantages of two approaches or the disadvantages of two approaches. Um, but water is fundamentally, from our standpoint, um, or from the standpoint we had at DSI, going to be the key resource of the future. So we cared about only developing propulsion systems that were compatible or that could be that could use propellants directly sourced from extraterrestrial resources or that could be derived from extraterrestrial resources. And if water is the ubiquitous resource that you expect to be working with, that really downselects pretty quickly into hydrogen oxygen water itself or hydrogen peroxide based systems. Um, we were developing water-based and peroxide based systems. And I still have a lot of affection for hydrogen peroxide as an oxidizer, but um, yeah, that was the, that was the thinking. And so our water-based thruster was you know, good ISP about 200 seconds. Um, and for people who aren't engineers or aren't socialized to that, this ISP or specific impulse is just the number of seconds that a pound of propellant can produce a pound of thrust. Um, 200 seconds is good. It's not great. Um, but the best ability, uh, that propulsion system had was availability. Uh, we could build them. They are robust. They are unbreakable. They worked really well. A customer could order one. We'd actually ship it to them. We knew how to integrate them into spacecraft. Um, so we were a bunch of spacecraft systems engineers by training. Um, so whereas a lot of the propulsion vendors at that time were doing R and D to extract incrementally more performance from prototypes, we were shipping flight hardware from order to orbit in a half a year, if not better. So we really focused on shipping product as quickly as we could, um, but making sure that we were trying to use future-proof propellants in everything that we did. Yeah, I'm actually surprised the ISP is, is that high 200. It's not a terrible number. I thought it would be lower. I also think that'd be a, a really good you know propulsion system for students that are learning how to deal with propulsion systems if you want something safe. I think one of the, the things that we really cared about as well was that you know, we were an asteroid mining company in vision, but customers didn't have to care about that vision. They didn't have to agree with it to recognize that our pursuit of it could generate great IP and products. Um, the first three um, of those water propulsion systems that flew were on um, Hawkeye 360's Pathfinder mission. It's an incredible company. Enabled their formation flying that did um, their RF detection geolocation pathfinder mission. We had another one that flew with Capella Space, another 
great company that's developing synthetic aperture radar. And then a number uh, were ordered by Black Sky as well, which is um, uh, did share, um, I guess, Spaceflight's journey up until very recently. And um, yeah, customers ultimately were agnostic as to our vision. I think uh, not not that this is the not that this is a fair comparison, but it's similarly themed in the same way that um, Elon Musk's passion for settling Mars has led to the development of fantastic launch vehicles. Um, you don't have to buy into the Mars vision to reap the benefits of flying with SpaceX. Yeah, I think that is a good comparison. I was, I finally got around to reading Elon's like 2017 paper back when uh, it was BFR with the all the carbon fiber instead of stainless steel. And he was talking about how they can leverage kind of SpaceX, you know, the satellite launches to fund the Mars mission and how, you know, he has this vision, which maybe not everyone agrees with, but if they can make money doing things with the tech that they're building, then it becomes a lot cheaper to get to Mars. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Rocket Lab. How did you first hear about them and how did you get involved? Yeah, so um, with Rocket Lab, so I left DSI right around the Bradford acquisition um, and I was pretty burnt out. Well, pretty burnt out. I was really burnt out. Uh, I took about a half a year off and I did nothing. Some people, when they take time off, they throw themselves into self-improvement or um, you know, try to exercise more, um, read more. Uh, I just took it as the universe's way of telling me I just needed to sleep for half the day and watch a lot of Netflix. So I did absolutely nothing for half a year. I really needed to recharge. And eventually kind of got to a point where I said to myself, well, if I'm living in one of the most expensive places in North America, I should probably go out and get a job. Again, it seems like the prudent thing to do. Um, so I started to put out some feelers and there were some interesting opportunities. But um, ultimately, I'd been working with a recruiter um, that reached out about an opportunity with Rocket Lab, had a few initial calls um, with them, and then had a conversation with Pete Beck, where I talked for about 90 minutes or so, and, and I was hooked. Um, Peter is, uh, would also be a fantastic guest on this show. He's uh, just a fantastic speaker in general, and when he talks, you can hear the passion in his voice for what he wants to do. And with Rocket Lab, um, what they wanted to do at that point, Electron, their launch vehicle was flying successfully, but Pete was looking for somebody to come in and create a space systems group that could take their already fantastic upper stage um, that they called the kick stage at the time and evolve that into a multi-mission small spacecraft platform. So he wanted me to come in as the chief engineer for that space systems group, um, create the team, create the technology roadmap, design and get to flight the first spacecraft. And then I think the really cool thing um, was the long-term moonshot. Uh, I think the first time I sat down with Pete face-to-face, -face, one of the questions he asked was, okay, how do we get to the moon? So that was the kind of dynamism that you get out of the Rocket Lab experience. And yeah, it was, it was really one phone call with uh, Peter Beck had me completely hooked and interested in taking that opportunity. So um, that's really how that got going. Definitely. And I think a lot of stuff has happened with Rocket Lab over the past couple of years. It's been cool to see them, you know, start to flourish. And it seems to me they're one of the few launch companies that doesn't have a multi-billionaire backing them. What do you think makes Rocket Lab successful without that crazy amount of funding? That's a great question. Um, so Rocket Lab has been the beneficiary of a significant amount of, a relatively significant amount of equity financing. So I think that they've, I should know this, uh, and forgive me if the number is inaccurate, but I think they've raised on the order of $290 million uh, of equity financing, uh, largely from tier one venture capital firms, but also uh, sovereign wealth funding. And they still have, I think, a significant amount of uh, reserve capital from those fundraising activities, but uh, it takes a lot of capital to get to first flight. And then even once you've got a working rocket, it doesn't mean you solved any of the logistics problems of getting customers integrated onto those rockets. And it sure doesn't mean you've solved the production problem. And organizations, this is a very common problem in tech, but organizations often start as R&D entities um, and then hit a point where they have to scale. And this is kind of uh, what Jeffrey Moore referred to as crossing the chasm, which is the title of a book he wrote about this. But the complexion of a company when it's in R&D mode and developing a new product versus what that company has to look like to go into production mode are often completely different and often uh, wholly incompatible with each other. So it's one thing to, it's hard enough to get a working orbital launch vehicle, 
Um, I think that Rocket Lab was only the second private company to achieve that, possibly the third, depending on when Pegasus uh, started flying successfully. It was right around the acquisition of Orbital. Um, but, um, you know, a lot of shipwrecks on that shore. But then once you get it flying, you got to figure out how to produce it. And you got to figure out how to produce it with good economics um, and not create a negative margin product. Those things are extremely challenging. So in terms of the recipe for success, I think Rocket Lab, I think Pete would also be one of the first to say that there were definitely some good bounces. There are also some bad bounces, but luck is always a factor in pretty much every success story. But um, really passionate young team that never, ever gave up. And the caliber of engineers who work at Rocket Lab are really exceptional and highly dedicated. And in their Auckland production complex, the APC, you know, you walk in at seven in the morning thinking you're getting an early start and the office is half full and you leave at, you know, maybe seven or 8 p.m. at night and the office is still half full. Um, the dedication that people have to Rocket Lab's vision and mission is just extraordinary. And I think part of that is the, you know, Rocket Lab really kickstarted the, the aerospace in New Zealand. Um, there wasn't really an aerospace industry in New Zealand when Rocket Lab was founded. And Rocket Lab, of course, also has its corporate headquarters, was in Huntington Beach, now in Long Beach, California, um, where we did a lot of the Rutherford engine production. And we were also doing a lot of the space systems work, a lot of the avionics assembly. But uh, the beating heart of Rocket Lab is really in New Zealand. And the passion that its staff have for their mission really has kept, I think, that company in the air when maybe in some early days it had no wings and no engine and no business staying in the air. So uh, really... Um, the people make it great and the grit and determination that Rocket Lab staff have had and the passion and attention to detail that they bring to their craft has really uh, set them apart from a lot of, um, I think, other people who've tried to do this. That's awesome. Yeah. I, Rocket Lab is one of the companies that, that really excites me. I think we're going to have Richard French on, who is their global launch services VP. No, I can't remember. Yeah, Richard's uh, Richard's a friend of mine. I, I, I'll i take credit and he can refute this later uh, for bringing him into Rocket Lab in the first place. Um, he's a fantastic guy. Yeah, so I think we'll have him on to talk a little bit more about Rocket Lab. And when I first heard you speak, it was at Space Vision last year when you were at Rocket Lab. And another person that was at that conference was John Conifay, who obviously works at Space Flood Industries. And I was also very impressed by him. So when I went to look you up for the podcast and saw you had moved over there, I was like, wow, both those guys are working business development. They must be doing pretty well over there. How did you get wrapped into Space Flight Industries? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so, I mean, Rocket Lab was extremely rewarding. Working on the um, the Photon program was a lot of fun. There was um, a lot of work that I was doing at Rocket Lab in addition to serving in that chief engineer role for the space systems group. Um, there was a little bit more on the business development side, on the corporate development side. Richard and I spent uh, a long time, uh, along with a number of others, working up the uh, proposal for Rocket Lab's uh, uh, capstone lunar mission, which was uh, something that I cared about quite a bit, was pushing Rocket Lab capabilities out into the rest of the solar system. Um, I'm, I am at my core a space exploration and development nut uh, and really wanted to push and never got any pushback from Pete on that. It's his vision as well. Um, but I found myself very torn. Um, I've often found myself torn between doing business development and doing engineering. And I've enjoyed my career most when I've been able to have one foot on the technical side and one foot on the customer facing side and make sure that they stay matched. But I was definitely feeling the pull to do more and more business development activities and to really actually focus more on business development and strategic development. And there gets a point, I think, where you really kind of have to go all in on it to do it really well. And then the second thing I think, um, and there were there were also life reasons as well that uh, drew me to move a little bit closer to Canada to be closer to family. A move that uh, I'm still in the process of completing because of the current COVID nineteen crisis. But um, overall, it was also the opportunity to work with bigger spacecraft, more spacecraft, bigger launch vehicles, more launch vehicles. Um, I don't think you have to rewind very far into the past to have been living in a world where the future of space travel or space travel in general depended on the choices that three countries and a couple of billionaires would make. I've always really cared about creating a space program for the rest of us. And at Rocket Lab, we were giving access for small spacecraft 
um, and I thought it was fantastic. I wanted to expand that. Uh, with spaceflight, I saw an opportunity to help even more diverse customers of all size classes get into space on a more diverse set of launch vehicles, which gives a huge amount of flexibility to the customer experience. And it was something I was very interested in, in participating in. As well, um, Spaceflight, um, this uh, podcast is being recorded in mid-June, um, only a couple of days ago, announced the finalization of uh, its acquisition by Mitsui, which has acquired the launch services portion uh, of Spaceflight. And they had a key role in convincing me that this would be a really exciting opportunity because Mitsui brings to bear significant experience and significant resources to help us further expand our rideshare capabilities, um, our space transportation capabilities in general, and gives us some new and creative ways to engage customers and help customers out. Um, so I looked ahead into the future and I said, well, um, I love what Rocket Lab is doing. And I know exactly what I think they're going to be doing in a year. Uh, with spaceflight on the other side of this acquisition, um, the sky's the limit. And I was also previously a spaceflight customer. Um, when I was at Deep Space Industries, we bought launch services through spaceflight. So I was fairly well acquainted with the company already. And my predecessor in this role, Melissa Worrell, had uh, been instrumental in convincing me that this would be a great opportunity for me. Um, so I made the leap um, in, I guess it was uh, March of this year. So just before the world stopped spinning which is a great time to switch jobs and switch cities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely not the most ideal timing, but I'm sure it's been, if nothing else, an interesting uh, jump into a new company. Can you give us some background on how this, so, you know, this deal with Mitsui is very new, at least to me. I, I just read about it a couple of days ago. Can you give us some background on, on what Mitsui has been doing in the past and also how this deal is working basically? Yep, absolutely. Um, so I, I won't, I probably can't talk with um, great insight or sophistication about Mitsui's broader portfolio. They've got a very large um, number of portfolio companies, but the opportunity with spaceflight is really to be the uh, focal point of Mitsui's overall space strategy. This allows us to operate as a separate entity from the broader um, spaceflight entity that also comprised Black Sky previously. So it represents a separation of the two companies. Um, that's good for both in the sense that Black Sky can now focus, be laser focused on their activities and it lets us laser focus on launch services, space transportation services and rideshare. It gives us significant and strong backing. Um, Mitsui has considerable resources that they can help, um, that they can bring to bear in supporting our activities as we try to expand our offerings. And um, yeah, we, we hope that this acquisition will result in us being the cornerstone of Mitsui's overall space strategy, as I mentioned, but also allowing us to continue to operate as a private and independent U.S.-based company. Um, I think that it was in February that Spaceflight's parent company, Spaceflight Industries, had announced the signing of the agreement uh, for sale of the launch service portion of the company, but that had to go through um, the Committee on Foreign Investment in U.S. Companies Review, which was completed in late April. And then the acquisition was finalized on uh, June 12th of this year. Um, so it's it's pretty exciting for us overall. Um, Mitsui's uh, overall uh, kind of high growth portfolio um, positions us to deliver and expand the services we've already got. Um, so we you know provide rideshare and mission management services for a very large number of companies. Um, but that's really only the starting point. Um, with Mitsui's support, kind of the next chapter for spaceflight is to continue to expand its offerings in space transportation in general so that we can get really any customer into space with maximum flexibility, exactly when they want to go, exactly where they want to go, um, and exactly on the kind of schedule that makes sense for their own development. Awesome. Yeah, so spaceflight's very interesting to me because I think it'll make space a lot more accessible but on the back end for you guys it seems like there's a lot of logistics a lot of different variables so let's start with talking about launch providers i know you launch with spacex and with rocket lab how do you approach a launch provider and how do you get those kind of deals where you're able to fly stuff on their vehicles oh that that's a great question and and it really depends um it's different launch vehicle provider to launch vehicle provider but um generally what we try to do is we try to create long-term relationships and long-term deals with as many different launch vehicle providers as practical um, so that we can offer a portfolio of vehicles rather than just one rocket 
you can imagine the case where, for example, if you're if you're a customer and you came to us, um, if we only had one launch vehicle and that launch vehicle was out of service because of um, a business interruption for us or technical challenges, um, you're stuck. So what we try to do is have a diverse number of launch vehicle providers that we work with so that we can take a customer and if necessary, move them vehicle to vehicle in whatever way makes the most sense that gets them up and is insulated against the failure, the business or technical failure of any particular launch vehicle provider. Uh, how we do those deals for launch capacity really depends quite a bit um, on the different launch vehicle providers. Um, you can imagine that there's a lot of back and forth um, with trying to strategically secure capacity. Um, but right now, we work with SpaceX. In fact, today we announced a longer term agreement with SpaceX for rideshare services, as well as announced uh, our intents to fly on an upcoming SpaceX Starlink mission. Uh, we've got uh, Vega launch. Uh, we work with Vega. We're launching with them tomorrow, um, June 18th. We have spacecraft on upcoming, many upcoming PSLV missions out of India. We've got Canon spacecraft that we've manifested on the next Rocket Lab Electron flight. So we work with all of them. They're all different to work with. Um, they're all fantastic and all have different advantages. Um, but um, I think you correctly identified it's um, the juggling act both on the launch side and on the customer side can be um, challenging. And it's a testament to our mission management and engineering teams that they're able to play Space Tetris so effectively. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of moving pieces uh, one thing that we want to do is we'll, we'll probably bring John Conifay on to the podcast as well at some point. Can you explain uh, kind of the difference between your guys' jobs and, and sort of also what team you lead under the uh, sort of business development and, and strategy? Yep. So so at Spaceflight, um, I get the privilege of bossing John around all the time, uh, and I'm sure he loves it. Um, anything anything he says about me when he does the podcast is patently untrue, of course. Um, he or his successor you know, will, will love me as a boss, but, um, no, I work with, I work with John and the rest of the business development team to, you know, really go out into the industry, um, work with customers to figure out what makes sense for them, both sometimes in the onesie twosie launches, but also look at longer term strategic deals for customers with, uh, that are, that are multi-launch multi-spacecraft deals. Um, we also then try to on the back end, develop new financial structures, work on new technical initiatives, um, and support our engineering team on, and mission management teams on new technical initiatives that'll improve our offerings. Um, we've got a number of exciting new projects that we're not quite ready to talk about yet, but have really been kicked off with the completion of our acquisition by Mitsui. Um, so we try to stay at that intersection of um, what customers want now, 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 and it's you know fundamentally about selling capacity, but then also making sure that we're looking down the road and working together with our engineering teams here, our mission management teams to, to architect our technical roadmap and also a financial roadmap that's going to position us very well in the future um, to continue to get customers into space exactly when they want, exactly where they want. So let's talk a little bit about how it works from a customer side. So let's say I am, uh, let's say I'm a university that wants to launch my 3U CubeSat that we're working on right now. And I come to you and I say, hey, you know, we need this sort of inclination and we'd like to launch in this window. How do you go about actually working with that customer and what sort of services do you provide so that it's easier to work with you than working directly with the launch provider? Yep, that's a that's a great question. Um, and you, you kind of, um, you hinted at it a little bit, the last part of the question, which is um, when customers go directly to the launch provider, it can often be the case that the price um, isn't actually the price because they might charge you for the capacity, but they won't charge you for all of the mission management, uh, engineering and integration services that are required to get a spacecraft onto a given launch vehicle. Um, CubeSat customers, for example, um, are rarely going to go, they'll never go out and buy a dedicated launch vehicle. Um, it's prohibitively expensive. Uh, Rideshare is kind of the fundamental way that we can get CubeSat, we get CubeSats up uh, into space. And that requires um, some pretty heavy engineering integration and mission management capability in order to manifest multiple CubeSats on a particular launch vehicle. So the customer journey for, let's say, um, an education customer that's got a CubeSat would usually fundamentally be coming to us, um, engaging with our business development team, which is something we can do through the website. And we're also about to launch um, a revamped version of our website that'll make this process much easier. And for standard form factors, will allow you to purchase capacity directly through the website. But 
if um, you end up having to um, engage with uh, our business development team to satisfy a particular need or because there's something particular or special about the spacecraft, then we work with you to not only make sure that we've got a full scope of engineering services that we'll add to the capacity, and that's baked into our pricing, but um, you know we'll identify different launch opportunities that would make sense for a given customer. Um, sometimes we'll have a particular customer that wants a particular launch on a particular vehicle, and then we'll go out and we'll secure that capacity for them. Um, other times we'll have a customer that is launch agnostic, in which case we'll structure a deal that will uh, allow us to launch them as soon as they're ready on the earliest flight of opportunity. Um, and then more and more, we're doing deals that look like master launch service um, agreements that are true services agreement that are essentially almost like getting a subscription service for launch. So if you have multiple spacecraft that you'd like to fly um, and you're going to be developing them and rolling them out over a number of years, um, then you know we'll do pretty even, we'll often do pretty even kind of uh, monthly payments or installments against securing a broader capacity on a large number of vehicles that let customers uh, with as much agility as practical, move launch vehicle to launch vehicle until they're in a spot that they want, lock in, and then fly. And then we'll provide all of the back-end integration services and logistics support with the launch vehicle, including supporting, obtaining necessary licensure, um, and even insurance when it's um, uh, called upon or called for by a given customer. So we try to be the end-to-end -end service provider that detaches the customer from the problem of going out and finding launch. Um, and earlier this year, to really help socialize the community to the challenge of launch, we commissioned a study by Bryce that looked at launch delays, which found for small satellites that 100% of launches get delayed. Was that report published? Because I saw something on Bryce's website about delays. Yep, you can you can download it directly from their website. Okay. And um, yeah, launch always moves to the right. Um, so, and that, that can be extremely punishing on customers. And if you're anchored into one particular launch vehicle, and it shifts, there's often no remedy for uh, dealing with that delay. So our whole, I guess, brand and philosophy is about providing flexibility. So if you need a specific, you know, a specific altitude, a specific um, inclination or LTAN, you know, we'll get you matched to the correct flight. If you're a little bit more indifferent, or if you're deploying a constellation that wants diversity of orbits, then we'll expose a lot of capacity options to you. And, and sometimes, like I mentioned, we go out and get specific capacity for a specific customer. Other times we have pre-existing capacity that we'll match customers to. And sometimes it's been the case where we've gone out and we've bought the whole launch vehicle um, to execute a particular mission. Um, that's what we did with SpaceX um, and Falcon 9 on our SSOA mission a couple of years ago that predated my time at Spaceflight, but I was a customer of from the satellite side. So. Um, the short answer to your question is that it really varies, um, but it's that flexibility that we take pride in offering. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I, I just wanted to clarify. So you're saying there's a day, hopefully soon, where if I had a standard size CubeSat, say a 1U or a 3U, I could actually go and, and make that purchase essentially on the website? Yep, absolutely. We want to make it as easy as possible for customers that are using, I guess, standard form factors um, uh, and we see increased standardization, like they're definitely attractors in the chaos of satellite shape and size. Um, but for CubeSats in particular, um, the process of getting manifested on the launch should be a lot easier than we see it being uh, out in the world. Um, so if you don't want to talk to a human being, hopefully we'll be able to allow you to, to three-click your way to a launch uh, via our website in the very near future. That's awesome. Yeah, that's one of the things I've always liked about your website is you can go on there and kind of look at what the different options are for inclinations, what quarter it's launching in, rough pricing, stuff like that. So that's really cool to hear. Oh, and I, I think the, the other thing that I'll tack on to that is that we've been doing this kind of work for Leo customers for a while, um, but we haven't stopped in low Earth orbit. Um, our GTO-1 mission that carried the uh, SpaceIL Bearsheet lander um, was really our kind of our first foray into missions beyond LEO, but we expect to be doing a large number of missions beyond low Earth orbit as well in the coming years. And so we're pretty excited about that. Um, Rideshare gives fantastic economies of scale for the increasing number of, I guess, credible uh, exploration missions that are being done in a low cost, rapid development way. Awesome. Yeah, that, that I mean, uh, yeah, I think the whole business plan of standardizing the CubeSats and of, of being able to start to reach out and make it easier to go even beyond LEO would be amazing. Uh, so we're going to switch gears and go into some student questions for you. 
I think we actually covered a couple of them in our talk, but the first one I see that we haven't covered is someone asked the question, what do you think about the phrase to make a million in the space industry? You start with a billion. (laughs) Um, So I've I've used that line. I've stolen it without attribution a few times. Um, uh, It's pithy. Yeah, it's it's a longstanding joke that this is a really good industry to lose money in. Um, It's not untrue. There, There are a lot of shipwrecks on that shore. When you look at the, I guess, the space economy, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, to, uh, to, or back, I guess, uh, a global annual space product. Um, it's been variously estimated that there's about 350 to, I think, $380 billion of global space product um, that the world churns out every year. But a very large fraction of that is still fundamentally tied up in um, satellite communications. Um, a very small amount of that goes into hardware. Um, I think the launch fraction of that is not much more than 10 billion. Um, the satellite fraction of that is in the single digit billions, the actual hardware fraction of it. So there are a very large number of people who have started space companies um, that have fallen apart because they just had um, market failure of various sorts. Uh, the market just wasn't there. Either they were too early, uh, which uh, I was joking earlier is not particularly different from being wrong, um, or the market that they thought would be would materialize just isn't there yet. or isn't there at all. Companies don't fail because the technology is twice as expensive to develop. They fail because the addressable market that they thought would present itself um, fails to do so, fails to materialize. So I've seen a lot of startups heave into existence and then fail. Um, There aren't a lot of successful uh, exit stories um, or acquisition stories or IPO stories uh, that come out of the space industry yet. But the entrepreneurs in this space that I know, the serial entrepreneurs in the space have been undeterred by that and they keep plugging away. Um, there are, uh, there are a lot of market verticals that seem like they should be extremely lucrative that people find out aren't, uh, there are a number that I think are too early. Um, but it's, it's always an easy bet to say, to predict that any particular company is going to fail because nine out of 10 startups do, um, it is a very good way to lose money a lot of the time, but in the broader, I guess, tech world, and what we do expect to see this in aerospace in particular, there are going to be some outsized returns. So. Uh, some people are going to hit the jackpot, but yeah, up until now, um, the history of um, starting space companies has been fairly bleak. Unfortunately, there there are just a lot of shipwrecks on that shore. But in the final analysis, and this is what made me passionate in the very first place about space, um, humankind becomes spacefaring or extinct um, if we don't develop and settle space. Then we're kind of screwed as a species. Um, one way or another, these are activities that we have to undertake their mortal significance for humankind. It's best if we can do that in a way that reaches economic escape velocity and can be money-making because then you don't have to keep going back to the well um, and you can actually experience true exponential growth potentially in your activities. But I applaud the billionaires who've been willing to significantly reduce their fortunes by trying to make us a multi-planet species. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's really great to see that, you know, Jeff and Elon are willing to spend a lot of money with very little hope of getting good returns just because they want to expand us as a civilization. So a question about accessibility here, and I'll provide some some background on this because I know who asked the question. Uh, so we work with Blue Origin at University of Michigan to do some small payloads, and it's been a really great experience working with them. But there's a lot of uh, there's just a lot of legal and a lot of export and control that have to come with launching stuff into space. Do you think a lot of those sort of accessibility barriers, such as the complexity of the contracts, export and control, those sorts of things will fade away over time? Or do you think they're going to stick around? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think some in some areas, it will get easier. Um, I think you see it increasingly get easier. Um, but in other areas, it'll be more challenging. Um, and I think that the current global pandemic that we're going through here um, will come with uh, an unexpected regulatory hangover as well. Um, but you know, this is kind of one of the reasons that spaceflight feels um, it can provide value is helping shepherd customers through uh, the otherwise fairly onerous paperwork on the path to flight. Um, I was making a joke with a colleague um, that you know, Kerbal Space Program should have um, an add-on or feature, uh, add-on or a feature that allows you to experience all the paperwork necessary to execute a space mission before you're able to design it. Um, and then there's that old joke that you're ready to launch when the weight of the paperwork equals the weight of the rocket. In, in, some, in some areas, it's definitely getting easier. Um, 
and uh, I think that um, at the same time, the rate at which regulators can keep up uh, ultimately becomes a bottleneck for uh, launchers that want to fly at a very high cadence, like the rocket labs of the world. Um, and they work very closely with regulators as, as do we to try to streamline these processes. But I think it'll get better. I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon, unfortunately. Um, so the shameless plug there is that that's something that Spaceflight can help people with because um, we've done it a lot. But um, yeah, unfortunately, I don't think there's a relief in sight. It is fundamentally a pretty challenging business that requires a lot of coordination. I think that's going to get, despite initiatives to make that easier, and I'm thinking specifically about frequency right now, actually, and spectrum allocation, um, I think it's only going to get harder because they're just not making any more of it. Um, but uh, I wish I had a more optimistic answer there. Um, I think it's just part of, it's going to be uh, a fact of life for doing this kind of work for the foreseeable future, though. Yeah, I think the frequency allocation is especially going to be, as you said, increasingly tough. But I know there's a lot of said students that are really into Kerbal. That would be a quite humorous mod to, to add in because it, it... Yeah, I'll just call it, uh, set it to soul crushing mode where you've got to respond yeah. to an RFI <laughs> and then an RFP and RFQ undertake an extensive contract negotiation, finally get approval, um, then, of course, undertake uh, your process to get your NOAA licensure, your FCC licensure. Um, yeah, I think I think that that would um, probably be the worst thing possible for the future of our industry because uh, the first step in solving any problem is to dramatically underestimate its difficulty, right? So I don't think you want the student world to be exposed to how bureaucratic some of this can be too early in their careers. It'll deter them from uh, <laughs> pursuing their dreams. So. Yeah, that's probably true. Uh, another question here is about asking about how much hardware uh, you guys make. So I know obviously with Black Sky you're making satellites, but uh, you know, with the dedicated Falcon 9 launch, let's say, were you guys manufacturing a decent amount of hardware? Yeah, so so for that flight in particular, and a lot of our flyers downstream, um, we built a lot of the, the hardware that was required to integrate the spacecraft. Um, we'll do um, a lot of the miscellaneous um, components that people never think about when they think about bolting a spacecraft onto a launch vehicle. Um, we'll do a lot of the harnessing, we'll do a lot of support avionics. Um, we continue to do those, and with in this kind of new era for spaceflight, I'd expect us to be doing a lot more hardware work. Um, uh, and I'm a little cagey about that because we're not ready to, I think, unveil some of our new projects yet, uh, but we will be in the coming months talking about the hardware initiatives uh, and the new tech that we're developing to support customers um, to get to the orbits that they want to. But uh, we, we do end up building a large amount of the not very flashy, but absolutely critical components um, required to support any particular customer. Um, and it's doing that um, impedance matching between spacecraft and launch vehicle that is one of the back end value adds that we realize with our engineers and our mission management team. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it does seem to go with your value prop that you're kind of doing a lot of the back end work that people don't want to have to try and think about when they're just want to launch their satellite. Uh, we're down to the last couple questions here. Uh, we'll do this one first. What does a typical day of work look like for you? I'm imagining it, it varies greatly day to day, especially right now, but trying to do your best. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> coffee is essential. Um, I'm one of these, I'm one of these weird people who uh, wake up early in the morning because I find that between five or 6am and 8am is when you can actually do uninterrupted work before the, the phone starts ringing. But on any particular day, um, it's a lot of internal discussion on strategic capacity, on manifesting certain customers um, on different launch vehicles. Um, there's always the case um, on an almost weekly basis that somebody needs to move. Somebody's not going to be ready on time. Um, so there's some firefighting that we support. Um, it's just part of the job, and it's actually kind of fun. A lot of discussions about the longer-term strategic initiatives that we're working on, and those are not just technical initiatives, but financial initiatives as well. So uh, a number of, uh, I think we all live in Zoom meetings now. Um, so with extemporaneous uh, water cooler conversations having kind of gone away, uh, we have to kind of structure in a lot of those meetings. Um, I provide support from business development directly to our engineering team and mission management team. Um, a lot of customer conversations. So at any particular time, we're in some state of negotiation with a very large number of customers. Um, we're out trying to find uh, new business, try to advertise our capabilities effectively to emerging customers, looking at 
customer qualification, getting to figure out, figuring out who's real and who isn't, what opportunities we should go after, how we should prioritize them, um, engaging customers at all parts of the sales funnel, um, down from, you know, the, the initial conversations that we have about our capabilities all the way into the nitty gritty of contract negotiation and execution. Um, so a typical day is really a very large number of meetings and a very large amount of context switches. And, uh, um, I make the joke sometimes with, um, our VP of engineering uh, here, Phil Bracken, who's fantastic. I said, Hey, if you ever want me to design some electronics for you, I'm happy to do it. And he just kind of shoes me away. I'm not allowed to do engineering work anymore, but, um, uh, I definitely sometimes miss the days when I could just put my head down and work on a particular thing for eight to 12 hours, but, um, no two days at spaceflight are alike and that's fantastic. Um, tomorrow, I like, it's when you ask me that question, I pull up my calendar and we've got design reviews, a number of customer meetings, uh, contract negotiations, uh, internal update meetings, some strategic development discussions, and then Vega one launch hopefully tomorrow night. Um, and uh, a flight readiness review for that today. So it's, um, yeah, it's uh, it's a very dynamic environment, as I guess is the short way to describe that. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Every job I've re really loved um, has required uh, constant context switching. Um, it makes it hard to hyper-focus on something, but that's not the job. Mm -hmm. That sounds interesting. I think I, I get what you're saying about sometimes you'd want to go in and just, you know, work really hard by yourself on on something that's, you know, technically challenging. But I think it also sounds really exciting to have a work day like that where you're jumping in and out of stuff and have a lot going on at once. Yeah, it's it, it's exhausting for. I mean, I, I am I am an engineer by background and I'm a trained extrovert. I'm not a natural extrovert, so talking all day gets really exhausting. Um, but it's also really rewarding when I think uh, I'll, I'll butcher this, but to paraphrase uh, my predecessor Melissa, you know, you, you get to a point where you're not necessarily making you're not, you're not necessarily making the product anymore, but you can make the money that makes it. And so that becomes uh, a different kind of rewarding is, is um, getting different programs started, getting different customers on contract, getting different parts of the community engaged in what you're doing. But I still miss turning a wrench. Yeah, I'm sure. All right. Our last question is always a pretty broad one. Uh, it's about advice to students. So I'll just state it pretty broadly. What is your advice to students and SEDs who are you know, very interested in space, have been passionate about space and are hoping to get into the industry in a couple of years time. Yeah. So, um, geez, I should have pulled up my slide deck from space vision last year. Cause I think I had a couple of slides on advice for future rocket scientists, um, but students more broadly, the question that I get, the question that I get asked a lot is about grades and the importance of the GPA, um, having a great GPA or having, uh, coming from a great school, um, will get you through the door for your first job, but it becomes largely irrelevant after that. I never had great grades. Um, and also nobody ever asked about them. Most of the experience that I gained that was useful was in extracurricular activities I was doing, the side projects. And most of the opportunities that I've been able to enjoy in my career um, have been a result of trying to preserve, trying to create and preserve a very strong network of people in the industry. And there, there are some, in my opinion, legitimately bad actors in the industry, but most of the people with whom you interact as a student um, want to help you. And they will do whatever they can, even though they're often really pulled too many different ways and oversubscribed, they'll do what they can to help um, within whatever reasonable bounds that they're, they're, they're faced with. So the advice I would I, uh, that I benefited most from uh, and that I usually give to students is you know, grades matter to a point, but don't stress about your GPA, stress about your network. Get out there, meet people, work on hardware if you can, if you're in engineering and you want to get great experience. Um, uh, experience varies directly with the number of things you break. So get out there and, and break stuff. If you're not breaking stuff, you're not doing anything. And then I guess the other the other thing I wish I could have told myself 20 years ago would be that um, it's okay to fail. Um, if you're not failing, you're not doing anything. It's part of the process of learning and it's a consequence, an inevitable consequence of sticking your neck out and taking risks that's not going to work out every time. Um, and I look at not just projects where there's been some technical failure that was my fault um, or, you know, deals that didn't close that I really wanted. I mean, there, there are whole sections of my career 
where I felt like, oh, I left some plays on the field. I could have done that better. But but you move on. Um, you try to keep moving forward. Um, people are complex systems. Um, all complex systems are in some state of failure. I don't fear failure anymore as much as I fear not trying and not taking the home run swings. Um, so I want to stay passionate and I want to do risky out there projects, even if they're harder and even if the odds are um, less in my favor in doing so. Um, I think those would be the, the key pieces of advice um, that I think I hope are broadly applicable. And, um, and the other thing I think uh, that's really important is um, it's, extremely in, it's, it's extremely easy to burn out or lose perspective when you work hard and you're passionate about a given thing. Um, you can wake up one day and realize that you're just really far off course. So you've got to take care of, of your mental health. Your mental health is just as important, if not more important, than your physical health. Most of these jobs are marathons. They're not sprints. And so uh, I've never liked the term or the phrase work-life balance, but I really care a lot about work-life harmony and making sure that when it's time to shut it down, I shut it down because a lot of the mistakes I've made in personal life and in my past have been because I didn't know when to call it quits on the work day. Awesome. Yeah, I think those are really solid pieces of advice. Uh, that about does it for us. Thank you for coming on, Grant. Appreciate your advice and your stories. Oh, it's been a lot of fun. I, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to join the podcast and hopefully, um, yeah, hopefully some of it's useful for some of your audience. And um, also, I think lastly, anybody in your audience is uh, more than welcome to, to reach out. And I'm always happy to try to help uh, anybody at the individual level if I can. All right. Well, that pretty much wraps up the episode for us. Thank you everyone for listening and we will see you all next episode.